introduce and teach together with a friend and a very fine Dharma teacher, Bolozov, who has been doing Dharma teaching for 37 years. Both he's a fine Dharma teacher and a Johnny Cash wannabe. (laughs) (laughs) Playing music with the San Quentin Blues Band in Folsom Prison. So you get some kind of combination tonight of this. Uh, And Bo started uh, the Prison Ashram Project together with Ramdas in the 1970s. Back in the years when Ramdas also began the Seva Foundation for Service hospitals and so forth around the world and a, a hospice work um, and the prison ashram project um, among the first publications was uh, something called Inside Out that was really providing um, materials for those in prison to turn their cells into the cells of monasteries or temples um, and Bo is sort of some combination of Buddhist, Hindu Whatever, I don't know, he can speak for himself about it. I was listening to Garrison Keeler last week and he described, you know, as he does in Lake Wobegon, the, the um, kind of Norwegian Lutherans of, of um, that part of Minnesota. And he said, and then there was this fellow from Lake Wobegon who went and spent time in India and came back and became a, a Hindu Thran. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Um, in beginning the prison work decades ago, um, prison dharma work um, and offering spiritual practice, um, since Bo has started in the 1970s, um, we now have five times as many people in prison in this country as we did at that time. Five times as many. We've got two and a half million people in prisons and jails, five million people on parole and probation and so forth out of, in the prison system. Um, and over the years, there's been, the, there's a kind of political movement, the political capital of playing on people's fears. You know how that happens, don't you, in this country, both in, in the country and outside. Um, instead of having you, a humane vision of how we deal with conflict in the society, um, has ended up with three strikes laws, um, the war on drugs, where in certain state prisons, um, at least one statistic I read, uh, one of the state prisons said half the people in the state prison were in there for marijuana offenses, if you can imagine being in state prison for that, um, that they become these huge racist poverty prisons, warehouses, for people who are born into poverty. And then when you go out, the revolving door, you go out with no support after years in there, nothing. Um, And then a small parole violation, missing an appointment or something like that, and then you're stuck back in for another five years. Um, So it's become this kind of industry, and we now have more people, more human beings in these cells behind bars than I think any other country but China, if if I'm correct about this, in the whole world, and more than all of Europe put together. Um, And Bo's work, including a whole variety of books and teachings over the years, um, perhaps characterized by the title of one of his books, We're All Doing Time, is um, offering teachings about freedom um, wherever you find yourself. We're all, in some way, in limited circumstances. And because 
you were in town, Bo, I was very glad to invite you and have you here. And Spirit Rock has, for the last five years or so, had a prison project that then turned into its own entity, the Insight Prison Project, that's run by Jacques, Jacques Verdun, who's here um, in San Quentin and in a number of other prisons around the state. And it, does all kinds of wonderful things of both offering meditation teachings and anger management and the work of restorative justice um, where people who've committed crimes and those who were the victims come together um, and as Jacques said at one in one conversation he said being there in the room where someone who's done something uh, terrible to a person or to a family um, asks for forgiveness and then is granted forgiveness is one of the holiest things he's ever seen on this earth. It's really quite astonishing. And this work, which Bo has done, um, really speaks to the Buddha's teaching where he says in the Sutta Nipata, um, not merit or good deeds or concentration or insight, no kind of meditative states, or rapture or bliss, none of this is the reason for the teachings of the Blessed One, of the Buddha, nor the absence of those things. But all of the teachings point simply to one thing, which is translated as the sure heart's release, the understanding that whoever you are in whatever circumstance you find yourself in can be a place either of prison and fear and constriction, in work, relationships, place you live, all the kinds of things we encounter, or can be a place of freedom. And in the times of difficulties, people become hungry for dharma, for understanding that can help when things are um, frightening to us, or there's grief or loss, or all the kinds of things that happen, illness. Um, I was told a story recently that doesn't have anything to do with prisons and yet maybe does. And being a storyteller, I'd want to tell it tonight. Um, uh, through an acquaintance, um, um, or a good friend of mine actually, a good, uh, and, a, and a, friend of, a, a good friend of mine was um, a roommate uh, with uh, Yo-Yo Ma um, at Harvard, I believe it was, when they were undergraduates. Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist. And apparently Yo-Yo Ma, as a, um, a genius and as a, a prodigy, even at the time that he was a student in the music department there, was so good that, yes, his teachers were teaching him, but also he was teaching the faculty. Um, and not in a bad way. He's a, apparently both has a tremendous amount of humility and, um, and a great deal of wisdom, kind of a remarkable person. But anyway, as the story went on, um, it turned out that after being in the department for several years, one of the senior department members and one of his teachers and mentors, a woman, um, was dying of cancer. And various members of the musical community would come over and play for her while she was in bed in her last weeks um, as a kind of language, if you will, of the soul to her. And on the last day of her life, very, very weak, but still able to speak. Yo-Yo Ma went over and played beautiful things for her for a while. And then she said to him, I'm dying, you know. And he said, yes, I know this. She said, play me something for a dying woman. 
and he played her a tango. <laughs> he had a, she had an appointment, obviously, to dance with someone, I believe, uh, known as Death, was her partner in that particular dance. Um, and I tell this story because it speaks of a kind of spirit that's possible. There you are, unable to move and lying in your deathbed, or there you are in a prison cell, or here you are, you know, in the middle of a terribly painful divorce or a business that falls apart or a diagnosis of some kind or someone you love in the middle of that. And what do you do with that? How do you turn that from being prison and oppression and um, confusion and suffering into the sure heart's release? I was part of a series of meetings and led up to a major conference with the Dalai Lama um, a couple of years ago on prison work um, that I've talked about in some previous Mondays. And several of the people, we arranged for the Dalai Lama to meet with 20 or so people who were just coming out of prison doing prison dharma practice. Um, And the majority of the people had been in for 15, 20, 25 years on various kinds of Um, charges and finally released but they were people who had used meditation and dharma understanding to change their life and uh, sitting in the room the Dalai Lama has this extraordinary presence and so forth Um, and there were lights around him that shone with an incredible brightness like his own there was a woman from the, the maximum women's maximum Uh, security prison in New York State um, where as she said 97% of the women in there had been uh, physically abused or and or raped before they committed any kind of crimes that got them into prison and this particular woman Luce um, had suffered some years of terrible abuse from her husband and then she killed him and so she was imprisoned for 14 years uh, more or less illiterate and in the course of her prison term taught herself to read, went through school, graduated college and then started a program for all the other women around her um, to teach them how to both read and empower them in some way and she was so successful that the governor pardoned her and then the prison wardens hired her to work for the state and run these programs in the women's prisons. Um, And it was remarkable to have the spirit of this woman who had gone through such terrible things sit with the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama nodding and saying, yes, this is what we mean by Dharma. And she was just shining. Um, Or a woman who was in Louisiana for 14 years. I think she was part of a armed robbery when she was young. She was a car driver in it or something. And she'd really given up on life and become very... um, closed and hard and bitter and they put a short timer in her cell overcrowding this young woman who kept getting sick and bothering her and then all of a sudden it dawned on her the woman was pregnant the young woman who was sick all morning every morning and the whole cell block adopted this woman and would sneak extra food to her and take care of her and she got out after five months and had her baby outside and then the picture was sent and it was like the whole cell block were the grandmothers or the aunties and it turned the life of her cellmate around this woman who'd been so barricaded and closed came alive again and when she got out again she's been doing remarkable work in the world 
it seems that perhaps the most important thing in spiritual practice is the realization that freedom is possible for us and that we don't have to wait for a cancer diagnosis or, you know, um, some difficulty um, that sweeps our life away. Um, But in fact, spiritual practice, if you will, is the training of wise understanding of ways to quiet the mind, learning how to cultivate compassion, um, live a life of integrity, develop the capacity to forgive and let go, which we all have in the heart, until we become freer and freer, trusting the space of awareness so that when the difficulties come, we have these resources. Um, And even if we don't have difficulties, they're always here because they're part of the fabric of the world around us. And the more centered and wise and gracious or compassionate that we become, the more that our life actually weaves into the threads of this world that needs it so much, the, that spirit. So it's with these kind of welcoming words and comments um, that I um, turn it over to Bo, and um, then after a while, perhaps we'll have some time for questions or dialogue. <laughs> kill two birds with one stone right off the bat and um, a lot of people have asked me to do some music tonight because I've been doing a lot of music since I came out of a year of silence and I can give you an experience of of the prison work because I'm going to invite you to do a song with me that I open up almost all my prison workshops with get hundreds of prisoners singing with me so you have a job in here shouldn't be too hard for you. And they are prisoners tonight, so it's... <laughs> now, this, this combination of this kind of vocal mic and the guitar plugged in is not quite set up for music, so you have to... Uh, can you still understand words that I'm saying with the guitar? Okay. Here's your part. Just picture, what, 200 convicts last night at San Quentin doing this with me. Off of 
One of the nice things about sheer longevity in one field is that me visiting a prison these days is like Mr. Rogers going to an elementary school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they let the San Quentin Inmate Blues Band open for me last night. As soon as I show up, everybody's just smiling. And so we get to do that together, what we just did. I mean, we talk about very serious things. These are some of the most brutal places that exist. But it would miss the whole point if we didn't somehow 
enter into beauty together. It's been, there was an expression that was said so often when I was growing up in the early 1800s (laughs) (laughs) that it became cliched. But when is the last time you heard somebody seriously say, the best things in life are free? It's been a long time. As a culture, I don't think we believe it anymore. But it is true. And we get some of those free moments like we just had. And I was saying at dinner, there was one guy, uh, one prisoner at San Quentin last night who was one of the singers in the Inmate Blues Band. Big black guy, real rotund and great voice. And I called him up to do this with me. So he and I actually shared a mic and uh, we were about just this close to each other, looking straight in each other's eyes for the whole time that we were singing harmony on the ooh-ooh and stuff. And the best things in life really are free. I mean, there's just... Somehow, as Jack was pointing out, a lot of times it's adversity that stops us long enough to rediscover something as simple as beauty, um, something noble, something sacred. I think if we look around at our mainstream culture and all the misery that we're in, I mean, statistically speaking, we are the unhappiest nation in the world by far, just statistically. The number of antidepressant prescriptions written for our adults, the fact that American children are the most violent children who have ever been born, ever anywhere, the most homicidal, the most suicidal, the most drug-addicted children who've ever been born. I think by any fair evaluative standard, we would have to say Mother Teresa was right when people would come to Calcutta and say they wanted to work with her, and she would say, go back to America, because your spiritual poverty there is worse than anything that's going on here. And that was 40 years ago, and I, I think... Three things, three qualities of a human life. Something beautiful, something noble, and something holy or sacred. Just think of those three qualities. They're they're experiential qualities that you and I have an opportunity to tap into every day. The moment that I reach for my guitar, I'm in something beautiful. I could do, I mean, I'm giving a concert in Sebastopol Wednesday night. I did one here a couple of weeks ago. That's, I mean, I could, I could never teach Dharma again. That'd be fine with me. I don't know how to do, I, I don't know what this is about. It's just something that I do. I know what doing a concert is about. It's about being in beauty for the whole night, and I could do it forever. Something beautiful is something that touches us, moves us in some way. Something noble is something that is larger than me. It's an idea, uh, a cause, a person, a faith that is worth risking something for. It's worth setting something that I want aside for. It's something bigger than me, something noble, something to believe in, something sacred, something holy. 
like Jack was mentioning, the presence of somebody like His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I mean, as soon as I light my candle every morning and put my zafu on the floor, that's just like, I mean, that to being sacred, to feeling the sacredness, is like picking up my guitar to feeling the beauty. Some of us are fortunate living the more classic human homo sapiens experience where on a daily basis there's something that really moves us, something that we do that we really believe in, it's worth sacrificing for, risking for, and sometimes space, person or whatever that we feel sort of humbled and sacred in the presence of. But if we look around our beloved culture and our beloved land, is it possible that tens of millions of people don't have the slightest consideration during their day? Something that moves them deeply, something that they believe in deeply, something that feels sacred or holy. Look around. And that's really chilling. Because this is what life is about. When I work in prisons, I mean, the places themselves are just terribly conceived, terribly constructed, and terribly operated. Just the stupidest counterproductive ways to deal with human beings that you can imagine. And so if those people, those men and women in those institutions couldn't find anything beautiful, noble, or sacred that can't be kept out by that prison experience, there would just be nothing at all to live for. And that's why a lot of people in prison die over cigarettes and changing a TV channel, and because there's just nothing. If, you, if you're not looking for something, if you're not open to something, the best things in life are free. Here's something beautiful. Here's something noble. Here's something sacred. Guess what? These things exist. Yeah, we've forgotten about them as a mass culture. Yeah, we've just replaced it all with getting stuff and having stuff and defending stuff and protecting stuff. But guess what? When you get all that stuff ripped away, the beautiful, the noble, and the sacred exist. If you try really hard. I mean, you do this despite the environment you're in, certainly not supported by it. But they're reachable. They're possible. And they're absolutely real. It's not like, well, it's my truth. It's true for me because I believe in it, but maybe if you don't believe in it, that's fine. Maybe it's not true for you. No, no, no. If you think that there's nothing absolutely real about beautiful, noble, and sacred, it's very simple. I'm right and you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The beautiful, the noble, and the sacred are alive and well. And we need to take more time and space to touch them in our daily lives and to exemplify them, to kind of walk around with them in this period of misery that we're in. Because we really are, as a people, We're in a period of misery. It's like the 800-pound gorilla in the middle of the table, and we don't want to talk about it. We just want to stay busy with our 
Blackberries and cell phones and laptops and all the things that glow in our faces when people look at us. And we want to stay really busy with that. But all of us have the opportunity to orient ourselves around what is beautiful, what is noble what is sacred and have the rest be the support system and to me that's what spiritual practice really is that's, that's what it's about is, is putting the horse before the cart the whole world of our support system what we do for a living how high on the hog or low on the hog that we live whether we're married or not how many children we have what part of the country we live in all of those things are reasonable concerns, and we need to take responsibility and do those things. But they're only in support of this deeply human experience of things that are touching and deep and sacred. And we have, as a mass population, just lost sight of that really big time. You know, look what's happening in our education, our public education system. What's being removed are the arts, phys ed. Anything that doesn't lead to income and competing against the Japanese or something like that. I mean, you know, let's shore up our educational system. What we mean is forget the arts, forget the humanities, forget anything that might be ethereal, forget anything that might be deep. Let's just program our kids to make a bunch of money because it hasn't made us happy. So why should they be happy? <laughs> you know, we're really just kind of crazy. We're sweet. But we're certifiable at this point. So I get to work in places that help me on my spiritual journey profoundly because most of the people in this room have distractions and denial systems that are working fairly well. <laughs> and prisoners, prisoners are at the end of the road and there is nothing that is working. There is nothing that can help them to just sort of stall it out a lot because I'm still having fun and I'm still popular and I'm still getting this and that and I like the way that people look when you're in prison you're, you're wearing blue, you're a number people treat you like trash and everything has gone out of it and so an enormous number of prisoners say I'm willing to listen is there anything real? Is there anything better than this shit? And, oh, it's such a good thing that there is. I mean, one of the first things that I say to prisoners is, I want to be honest with you, I don't give a rat's ass about your personal happiness. I'm not some liberal coming in here to help you be happy because I don't give a rat's ass about my personal happiness. That's what's destroying the world. This insatiable, hungry ghost 
drive toward a very superficial type of personal happiness in, in, in uh, isolation from our connection to each other, from our connection to the larger body of humanity, our connection to the world and the ecosphere itself. That's what's driving us crazy and into misery. So I don't, that's not really what it's about. It's about listening to some of these old ideas that the most loving, powerful, intriguing, and compassionate people in the history of the world have all agreed on about what you and I are supposed to do if we want to thrive. Take some time to be deep. Present ourselves in silence and humility every day before whatever that force is that's greater than us. Make sure that we literally take time to stop and smell roses. The best things in life are free. All these old cliches. And we just think we're just too sophisticated. We're just, those just don't all apply anymore. So I find that what the prison work has really done for me is make me as desperate as the prisoners. I want to change. I want to be different when I leave this room tonight than when I walked in. I want to be a little less self-centered and a little less vain. I want to be more committed and more deeply inspired. And I invite you to consider the same. Because one of the reasons that it's taken my organization three and a half years since I came out of silence to convince me to go out and do this again is that I'm cautious about how we use words. I respect the power of words, but I also have a healthy respect for the limitation and distraction of words. And sometimes the very words at the beginning of our spiritual transformative years, the very the, the books, the tapes, the lectures, the workshops, the retreats that help us to make this enormous turnaround in our lives and really get on board this spiritual journey, the same exact books and tapes and lectures and retreats can help us to avoid going much further along, can help us to stall, drag our feet, not change so much. You know, we kind of hit a plateau of change and then, see, we're no longer addicted and we're no longer dysfunctional and so our games sort of work. And so we don't have to keep being, becoming more profound. We don't have to keep becoming more holy because it's kind of nice being semi-holy for a while. <laughs> I really want to be holy. It's the only thing that is worthwhile. I've touched it countless times. I've been immersed in it countless times and there is nothing else. that The old Islamic poem that says, a moment with the beloved and the river changes her course. I like to paraphrase that a little and say, a moment with the beloved is worth anything, is worth 10 years of silence, is worth a zillion retreats, is worth dedicating your life to the cause that you believe in. A moment with the beloved is worth anything that we could possibly risk or give up. And so each day it can become this process where we really change. We really, you know, it's like the interest on an IRA or something. You know, if you, 
get a little bit less selfish and a little bit less vain every day, it starts adding up. And in my personal experience, there's a simple way to describe the word holiness. Very simple. It is the total, intensely total absence of selfishness. There's something that happens when we divest ourselves of those last thin layers of self-protection, of self-centeredness. There's a force that is unleashed. And through the ages, this force has been called holiness. The Dalai Lama told an interviewer some years ago, Sir, the Buddha was not just a nice man. See, there's a power, there's a force here. When we have laid off that tiniest, that last little, I better watch out for myself. I better monitor this experience. I better keep evaluating. I sort of trust life, but just in case. And when we finally jump into the river of life and never hold on again, never hold on to a an egoic reference point again. We just go with it. Other people begin using the word holy when they feel our presence. It's a pretty simple progression. And, uh, and sometimes the contrast, the extremes that you see in a place like a prison. I mean, I get to go into the most intensely negative places there are and have the most intensely positive experiences human beings can have. Imagine... What a privilege that is. I get to meet people who have done the most terrible things a person can do at a time when they're changing into some of the best people that there can be. Khalil Gibran in The Prophet said, the lowest that is in the lowest murderer is also in the highest saint. And the highest that's in the highest saint is also in the lowest murderer. I get to see that. I mean, imagine what that does for us looking at ourselves. You know, we're mostly in denial of how low we can go. And because of that, we're also blocking ourselves from how high we can go. Prisoners have gone all the way down. They go all the way up. Some of the best people I know have been vicious killers at one time in their lives. So... I've thrown out various little things that we can talk about, and I, uh, I really enjoy opening it up to you to see where you want to take any of this or anything else that you want to... I'm mean, happy to talk more about Human Kindness Foundation or my year of silence or anything else that is of interest or that brought you here tonight, but to make it the most real for how all of us might be a little bit different when we leave here tonight, where would you like to take this? Um, the other night, Bo, you talked... You, you have to say it as though I were back there. Okay. okay. Um, I heard Bo talk the other night, and he talked about the word boundary um, making you crazy or something like that. And, and so could you, could you expound on that a little bit about the, I don't know, the, uh, the balance of um, 
I mean, I understand that the boundary about not separating ourselves, but still about, um, I don't know. I'm oh, she's going to get me in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the Bay Area. There's a bunch of psychologists in the room. <laughs> and I'm going to trash the word boundaries. <laughs> I'm just, I'm a fanatic, and I admit that, and not everybody is a fanatic. I'm committed to the good, profoundly, and other than that, I have no boundaries. I, I have no idea what's supposed to happen. I have no idea what forms my experience is supposed to take. I know the good, and I know that I'm committed to the good, and that's it. Otherwise, I mean, I, I feel, but again, I, I'm... I'm acknowledging I'm a fanatic. I almost killed myself fasting at various times, going without water, being in isolation for enormous periods of time, spending long times in silence. Because, I've, because I am full tilt out for this state of consciousness that I've touched many times, and something is, is uh, pulling me. And I just feel, uh, when I went into a year of silence, my mother said to me, you've helped so many people for so many years, why can't you just relax and have fun? Why do you have to keep doing these things to yourself? <laughs> and I said, I hear you, Mom, and you're right, I don't, but I'm hardwired. I'm just hardwired to keep, to keep pushing through. And so, you know, to me, as I say, my prison work and my prison friends have helped me to become as desperate as they are. And boundaries, I think, is, is a good word. You know, you, you can't erect a barricade and just keep half the things out. You're, yeah, I have, uh, well, there's a, one of my most intimate elders, Father Murray Rogers, who's an Anglican priest and monk. And he's lived in India most of his life in the interfaith dialogue and living among the poor, and he lived in China. Now he's back in India to die, I mean in England to die. And he's never spent much time here in America. And he came to visit us for a few weeks. He was on our board of directors for many years. And he's sort of a holy man himself. He's almost 90 now. And he's just a beautiful, beautiful Christian man. And, um, and when he was at Kindness House, where I live, for a few weeks, uh, many of the people who come and talk with me, people from the surrounding communities, wanted to have meetings with Father Murray. And so they did. And toward the end of his stay there, he and I sat together and he said, you know, Bo, I'm wondering whether Americans are psychologically healthy enough for the spiritual journey. <laughs> <laughs> Only when they're in prison. <laughs> and he said, he said, because Americans seem to have to feel good about themselves. How can you go very far on the, field, on the spiritual journey if you have to feel good about yourself all the time? <laughs> and he knew that I had spent three years in retreat most of the time that that I would call a dark night of the soul, any psychologist in his right mind would call severe clinical depression. And Father Murray said, do you know anyone but you who would spend more than three weeks feeling like that, rather than, let alone three years? And yet it was important to you, wasn't it? it? It had a geography. It wasn't just sitting in one place. And so he was saying it quite seriously. A people... <laughs> A people who have adopted healthy relationships and healthy boundaries and healthy this and healthy that 
How healthy was the Buddha sitting down and saying, I am never going to budge from this spot until I see the truth of all reality? That's not healthy. That's not sensible. You know, I mean, he wasn't getting all his nutrients and stuff. So I think when we start out really unhealthy, like I said, at the beginning of our spiritual transformation, we're dysfunctional, we're addicted, we're neurotic, we're codependent. We absolutely need to get in healthier ground. But when we start trying to sort of slide an egoic, well-balanced self into holiness, at some point there's a disconnect because there is this ego death that took around the 15th century Hindu saints said the death of the ego is a festive occasion beyond compare. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't something that's unfortunate. But there is this sort of break. There is this break where, I mean, we've been trying to domesticate God for thousands of years. <laughs> And God is this feral force. And that's what, that's what His Holiness was saying when he told the interviewer, Sir, the Buddha was not just a nice man. Because we keep trying to make the Buddha into a nice man, a sensible man, a man who doesn't want us to go outside our comfort zone, a man who wants us to have healthy boundaries. Healthy boundaries are necessary when we've had unhealthy boundaries. But if we're really going for holiness at some point, it's a lot more risk than that. And I'm at that point. I mean, I'm, I'm just... You know, so I'm, I don't know how healthy I am. <laughs> how, I have a, you know, I have a question thinking about it, because when you talk about, you know, being a fanatic and there's a certain way you're on fire for God and this tremendous ardor, um, which is intoxicating and beautiful and, and um, inspiring, I also know a, a number of people with this kind of ardor and on fire and so forth who get who have very genuine experiences and then get inflated and you know all right i've touched god and this is the way or i get full of themselves it doesn't um, there isn't a kind of um reflection outside or something that um brings a humility that i also think makes us closer to what's Oh, yeah, yeah, it's risky it's really as hell. Genuine. Isn't it? Well, it's risky anywhere you go, doesn't it? Seem? I think if I had to choose one word, Jack, yeah. that I feel like is the most lacking in the Western spiritual culture, it would be humility. Yeah. And, uh, and that, humility. humility. And that's that's really what I'm asking about. Yeah. How do the two? How do you see the two fitting together? Well, when when Father Murray said, "How many people would spend as long as you have feeling really horrible?" I mean, I think my own condition keeps me humble. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I preach in a lot of churches, usually once. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm serious. I, I have but that designation. let you come back, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I have that designation. That I've been invited to preach in the most New Thought churches one time only, um, and and they, you know, a lot of churches have changed the lyrics to an old song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul. 
Now wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on there. That's not what the captain of the slave ship who wrote this song wrote. He wrote, that saved a wretch like me. I know my wretchedness. And I think it's so important to somehow, whatever magic is required, to get psychologically healthy enough to know what slime balls we are. <laughs> Instead of having to convince ourselves that we're not slime balls so that we can move through the day. And there was a Tibetan monk who... who I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, there was, a Tibetan, there was a Tibetan monk who wrote something about his being the worst horse in the stable. And I know that, that experience and that feeling. And, and I feel like if we're willing to touch... I mean, part of what I've discovered in, in this journey of the heart is the heart's a fairly simple apparatus, and we can't possibly... It, it's like you can't make... If you take a dime, you can't make the head side grow enormous, but tail doesn't grow. And heads is the sublime love of Christ, the compassion of the Buddha mind. But tails is our wretchedness, our wretchedness, how low we can go, what awfulness there is that lies within this, and how much pain there is, and, and our profound loneliness. I mean, all of that stuff that we're trying to stay away from, but staying away from that means that the head size can't grow either, and so we kind of stay in this sort of in-between in state. And I feel like once we really touch, I mean, it may sound unhumble for me to say it, but I know what I wake up like, go through the day like, and go to sleep like. I feel like a child. I feel like I can't make it throughout the day without holding on to the hand of the Divine Mother. And I'm no great shakes. And I'm going to do the best that I can today. And when I... Probably a lot of you have seen that uh, video called What the Bleep Do You... What the Bleep Do We Know or something? Fred Allen Wolf, a physicist, and some of these other people in the video were so wonderful and inspiring. The only people I couldn't stand in that video were the spiritual teachers. <laughs> they were obnoxious and smug and smarmy. And so I, I know what you mean, but it's... I mean... <laughs> that's... Yes. <laughs> they turn out to be the bleep. They turn out to be the bleep. I mean, really, you know... We don't, we don't understand, we don't understand these matters of spirit. We can humble ourselves before these great powers, and we know that, I mean, I think the most complex theology a human being needs is, I have no idea what's going on, but it has something to do with love. I mean, that's about what will keep us from getting in too much trouble, you know, and then we just go about following our guidance and following our best lights, and we make lots of mistakes, and we keep... Life helps us correct them. But I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think, and, and I think, and it's a, it's a risk, absolutely a danger. And hopefully we have a sangha, some sort of support community around us that can whittle us down to size if we, if we start getting a little too uh, self-aggrandized. Or a family. Or a family. <laughs> All you need is a child. That's it. <laughs> Dad, I think it's time for you to go and meditate. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just when you think you're this great-looking guy, boy, Dad, did you ever realize how big your nose is? <laughs> yeah, children are great for that. Yeah. If you could talk about um, or humanize the prisoners you've worked with, 
I feel pretty far away from what drives people to get into prison. If you could talk about sort of the emotions that, or whatever has taken people towards prison. Let's repeat that question. He says, could, could Bo humanize the prisons? I feel pretty far away from what drives people to get into prison. Hmm, well, there's every kind of person in prison, and especially more and more. In fact, Jack was being modest earlier when he said five times the number. We actually have 15 times the number of people in adult long-term prisons than when I started working in prisons. Um, and so at this point, I mean, it's such a hot... There's just a bunch of luckless people from every walk of life. The, the common denominators that people have are... are I mean, a, a whole bunch of people are just terribly uh, dysfunctional from confused and abused childhoods and a lot of drug addiction. I mean, over 90% over of the people in prison have some sort of substance abuse problem. Um, and 100% of the people in prison have one common denominator. Some of the wealthiest people from Nixon's cabinet and Reagan's cabinet and those kind of people who are in prison, um, the one thing that everybody in prison has in common is narcissism. And for a lot of the people, we liberals can say very sentimentally and sympathetically, we understand how they got to be so narcissistic. But it doesn't change the karmic consequences of having been narcissistic. It leads into places like prison. It's just, I, my actions, you know, my actions are for me, and I have no care about what they do to somebody else. I mean, that's basically what drives people, whether that's a millionaire on Wall Street or a street thug. And, and it's, uh, you know, Chuck Colson was one of those White House kind of people who got sent to prison, thinking he was above the rules and so forth, and he got seriously transformed in prison. And so I'm not sure how to humanize. I mean, there are people just like you, people just like me. People are just people. And I have some of the warmest and dearest conversations and experiences of my life in prisons with people whose rap sheet would make you feel like you didn't want to get within 10 miles of where they were. Prisons have also become our mental hospitals by default. Oh, we yeah. closed almost all the mental hospitals and so now when um, people have severe mental illness end up on the street very often nowhere else to send and the prisons are full of people who would otherwise get some other kind of support or treatment. Um, and like Bo, my experience in various prisons and visiting folks is, you know, I'll meet somebody who's been in there for 25 years, who's, you know, went in when he was 18, now he's 45 or something like that, and say, yeah, I did something really stupid and terrible. I was messed up on drugs and I did this terrible thing, and that was more than half my life ago. And I'm talking to somebody who has as much interest and integrity and um, aliveness and spirit as anybody that I ever meet in any other place that I have a conversation with. And he says, yep, that's how I ended up here. I mean, I was born, there was nothing else to do where I grew up, and yeah, everybody was on drugs, and I didn't know what to do, but here I am now, and it's an amazing thing to meet a human being that you feel, this is your brother, this is somebody you could have as deep a soul conversation with as anyone else you've ever met. Because Kyle Brown was right. Everything is in every... The lowest that's in the lowest murderer is in the highest saint. And the highest that's in the highest saint is in the lowest murderer. You and I are certainly between those two, so it's all in us. And, and you get to see that 
once you get past what people... And many prisoners say, imagine forever being known for the single worst thing that you ever did. That's what happens when you go to prison. That's what happens after you get out of prison. Just imagine yourself. Everybody in this room has done some things they're ashamed of. Imagine if that were the card you had to carry around here to Spirit Rock to get a new job. Everywhere you ever went, you had to announce the single most terrible thing you've ever done. That's basically what it's like to be a prisoner and then an ex-con. That's what it's like to try to keep moving. One of the things also that, I mean, because it's it's actually a very moving question that you ask, Um, some of the most transformative spiritual practice that I know that people have done is to do hospice work, especially if you've never really been around death, um, because it's going to happen. It just transforms you, and you're frightened, and what what do I do when somebody's dying, and how do I talk to them, and so forth. And after some time, you realize it's just another person like you going through a process that you will go through. Um, And the same thing, there are wonderful prison projects, like the Insight Prison Project and places to volunteer. And it, um, it might be frightening at first, but it turns out very quickly to be um, transformative and moving and awakening to do it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know so many people in prison who just feel, or the volunteers who go into prison almost unanimously feel it's a privilege to... I mean, imagine, I, I, I work with hundreds of thousands of prisoners all over the world, and I get to be a part of the most profound change for the better that somebody's ever done in their lives, ever going to do. I mean, imagine what a privilege that is. You know, you walk right into somebody's life when they're ready to make the biggest change the human being can make. You know, so it's, a, it's a, an extraordinary privilege. And, um, and I've never felt unsafe in a prison. Um, I mean, it's just, I mean, especially now, I, I walk onto a prison yard like at, at Folsom. As soon as I get through the gate from 50 or 60 yards away, you can hear, hey, Bo! It really is like Mr. Rogers visiting elementary school. And so Fred, Fred you, Rogers was a good friend of mine. That's why I use him as an example. Could you try Guantanamo? Is there a limit oh, to Oh, man, I would love to. <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. And let me give a little pitch for the various prison projects. Right, I mean, there's, a, there's a donation basket back there that goes to Human Kindness Foundation, and that's what is supporting my tour. I'm, I'm on a, a couple-year-long tour. I don't know how long it's going to be. It's going to be really going on and on. I've been gone since December and I'm just still heading out and so those donations support this this tour going to hundreds and hundreds of prisons but the Insight Prison Project that grew out of Spirit Rock also could use local support. Um, Jacques and the various people who work with it uh, do a tremendous number of things here in San Quentin and in some of the county jails. The Buddhist Peace Fellowship Prison Project in Berkeley is chronically underfunded, and they're trying to open up the most important resource, which is a post-release program, a place where people can come when they get out of prison and not just get out on the streets with $50 gate money and an absolute certainty of being back in trouble by the end of the week. So they're trying to open up a place like that, and uh, it would be nice. I mean, you can find any of these things online, I'm sure, but the Booze Peace Fellowship prison project is is uh, really in need of more local support, so I would encourage you to consider that. Um, and sometimes people ask me, well, what about the victims? You know, why do you work with the offenders, et cetera? And, and I explain, it, it's all one piece. 
whether you agree with it or not, we release more than 90% of the people that we put into prison. There is no difference between helping prisoners live more compassionate lives once they get out and helping the victims because we're trying to create fewer victims in the future. And, and the way it is now, over 50,000 men and women a month, over 50,000 a month are being released from prisons across the U.S. Well over 40 of those 50,000 don't have any resources to really make it in this world. So anything that you can do to help out in that would be would be really great. Yes. Yeah, um, I'm really grateful for you being here. It's bringing a lot of emotion up in me. I, um, there's a lot of good teachers that come through here, and it's great. And I thank Jack for that, too. In my 19th year, I spent a year in prison um, in New Jersey. It was a really horrendous prison. And uh, Which one? It was actually, it was a county. And, and it was uh, Hudson County in Jersey City. And um, I was the only white guy in my cell block, and I was like, a, grew up a rich white kid, you know. And, and uh, I was picking marijuana in the field. That's why I did time. And um, for those of you who can't hear, he spent a year when in his nineteenth year, he spent a year in a county jail facility for doing some pot stuff in New Jersey, and he was the only white guy in his cell block. Yeah, and um, what I'm trying to get to is that the second day I was there. He's trying to get to something. <laughs> what literally saved my ass was I could play chess because the head honcho on the cell block was a chess freak, and he was the only guy who could play chess. So I was playing chess with him, and two guys came up behind me, lifted me up, and they were going to rape me. And uh, I started crying. I said, couldn't you guys wait till after dinner? And this guy, this guy burst out laughing, and he was about 55, and I was 19. And he goes... This kid's under my protection from now on. Mm. He's my chess partner. Mm. And um, but what I was going to say is, you were talking about the people in there, and and, and I had a young black man as a cellmate, and um, we became great friends, you know. And and, and uh, the guys in there, I they they were good people, you know. They, and they, they were most of them in there were in there because they were young, grew up in the ghetto, and had heroin addiction and committed armed robbery and stuff like that for, mm -hmm. for because they had they never had a chance, basically. Mm -hmm. And at that time in my life, I felt like the people I met in there, in there were higher, higher quality people than the, the guards, the lawyers, the judges, the cops who put me in there. And Are you at the back missing all of this? <laughs> no. Oh, good. Anyhow, I'm, I'm kind of crying because it's, it's bringing up a lot of me, but... Um, Thanks for doing your work with that because mm. I, I just read Jarvis Master's book and that's a great book on mm. prison life in San Quentin and how he's, his Tibetan practice <coughs> is helping him. But it's, you know, I'd like to get involved in it somehow. Cause, I don't know. We'll talk to Jacques. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes. Um. Actually, I was pointing at her, but <laughs> we've had all these guys. <laughs> uh. I'd like you to expound a little bit on a contradiction that I hear, um, which is how egocentric or, or, or vain is it to take a year in silence when you bring, you touch people with such holiness, which you clearly do. 
Anybody hear the question? <laughs> you want to repeat it? How egocentric is it to take a year in silence when you touch people so deeply with the kind of holiness which you clearly do? It's a contradiction. There is absolutely no distinction in my life anymore between doing something for me or doing it something for service. My life is only about service. My life is service. There is no, I don't have any personal ambitions. I don't need any personal relaxation that has something to do with anything other than restoring me to go back in and serve. And my bond with prisoners, the only thing that I'm really good for, I'm not, I, Jack was a monk. He's a psychologist. I don't have any kind of training. I don't have any kind of credentials. The only value that I have is that I'm going for holiness. And... I'm moving through all of my darkness, I'm moving through anything that prompts me that seems to be divine guidance, go face this. And part of what prisoners respect in dialoguing with me, and the, the reason they trust my advice is that they know that I'm not just living a sensible and reasonable life where I've got everything in good balance, that I'm nuts and I go for it. And I'm encouraging them to be nuts and go for it, too. So the prisoners are very much a part of my year of silence. And they were part of my three years of retreat in the early 90s. Um, you know, I, our mailing list is about 50,000 people. I put a note out to 50,000 people. Well, I'm, I'm going in. Cover me. And, and they absolutely respect that. There's nothing vain about it because I don't have any other... Uh, I don't have any other life. Um, you know, people say, you know, we well, got to make some time for you. I hate that kind. Of, that's like the boundary thing. No, you don't. <laughs> We're supposed to actually die into service. We're supposed to give our lives into service. And so, giving our lives into service doesn't necessarily mean breathing out all the time. We also have to breathe in in order to have any value when we breathe out. And so, my breathing in is doing the kind of spiritual work and inner work that I encourage them to do. And it's all one piece. So it's not a contradiction to me at all. Yes. You know, Bo, it's, it's, it's 9.15, and <clears throat> at least some people have their kids here that they have to pick up. And I know you probably would be willing to sit here all night with everyone. <laughs> um, I'd be I just have to be at Napa State Hospital at 1 tomorrow. That's all. Uh-huh. It's only an hour from here. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, could I leave you all with a song? That's so that we kind of enter and exit. As long as you haven't changed the lyrics incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> this is a song I like to, I mean, it touches on a lot. And, and you can ask me that question. This is... Um, it's a woman named Mary Gaucher out of Louisiana. A beautiful song called Mercy Now. I, uh, well, I'll tell you, I wasn't sure I was going to put my harmonica rack on. I don't think it's going to work with this lapel mic, so I'll just make the song a little shorter anyway. Instead, it usually has a harp. But um, the music video for this song, Mercy Now, is one of the most touching music videos I've ever seen in my life. Everything from little images of her home movies to her brother in prison to Abu Ghraib and Tsunami and so all you have to do is go on to Google and say Mercy Now video you don't even have to remember her name it's really very moving 
my father could use a little mercy now. The fruits of his labor fall and rot slowly on the ground. His work is almost over. It won't be long. He won't be around. I love Father. He could use some mercy now. My brother could use a little mercy now. He's a stranger to freedom, shackled to his fears and doubts. The pain that he lives in is almost more than living will allow.
every single one of us for coming and for your songs and your heart, your work, and your insanity. <laughs> we need it. <laughs> and, you know, the spirit you carry and all of that. Um, thank you all for coming, as you do often. Um, it's really a privilege to share Monday nights. I'll be here next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.